Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. This is one of the most important shows you're going to hear probably in your lifetime because everything that happens with the food supply, the seed supply, the water supply, farming, the sale of food, eating of food, community lies in this segment of It's Rainmaking Time. It is my great pleasure and an honor to welcome best-selling author Vicki Robin, who's a social innovator, writer, and speaker. She is the co-author, along with Joe Dominguez, of an international bestseller, Your Money or Your Life, Transforming Your Relationship with Money and Achieving Financial Independence. And she has come out with a blockbuster, imperative book that I want you all to have at your homes called Blessing the Hands That Feed Us. What Eating Closer to Home Can Teach Us About Food, Community, and Our Place on Earth. She is also the founder of the New Roadmap Foundation. When you think about how vulnerable we all are to industrialized agriculture and the industrial food system, it is staggering. 200 years ago, local food was in everybody's lives. Farming was the primary profession. 90% of Americans lived on farms. It's not true today. We are all very captive to the industrial food market, and most of us think that we're eating healthy because we go to a farmer's market, or we go to Trader Joe's, or we go to Whole Foods. And I love Whole Foods, and I love Trader Joe's, but so much of the produce and so much of what we call real food isn't even from our own country. The USDA says that local food can be from up to 400 miles away from source to actually where it's being distributed. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome a prophet in her own time, Vicki Robin, to its rainmaking time as she helps us transform our relationship with life as she talks to us about relational eating and how, in fact, we should eat foods grown locally Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Vicki Robin to It's Rainmaking Time. Good morning. Good morning, Kim. That was quite an intro. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true. And while other people were watching the Super Bowl, which I enjoy the Super Bowl, I was finishing up Blessing the Hands That Feed Us. I love the name and title of your book, and your book was so substantive. I love the stewardship you provided in your book, how you talked about very tough issues and delicate matters in a non-polarizing way, but yet we're able to distill the light that we need to hear as consumers. I love the fact that you brought it home in this kind of a personal biohack you did on eating foods that were grown locally. I want you to first talk a little bit about what you did, contextualize it for the audience, and anything you'd like to talk about relational eating to just give them the first understanding of what this means. Okay, so as you have said, I am famous for my bestseller, Your Money, Your Life. I mean, I go around the world now, and I always find people who say, oh my God, your book changed my life. But there was one form... And I was called the prophet of consumption downsizers by the New York Times. But there was one form of consumption that was sort of off the table, so to speak, because um, I didn't want to examine it because food, uh, my relationship with food has been both emotionally driven and um, sort of psychologically driven in terms of assessment of my body and, and being perfected being. So, um, you know, we live in a food-obsessed culture. And um, and yet, where you know obesity is on the rise, heart disease, you know diseases of diet are on the rise. So we've, we're super focused on food, but we're also super addicted. <laughs> you know, we we're completely into dieting. I've done you know the A to Z Atkins to Zone <laughs> diets. I've tried um, ethical. I've tried health diets. You know, everything from being a vegan to the Western price idea about eating, you know, eating animal fat is really good for you. That's a traditional nourishing way to eat. Um, and people who eat that way are healthier. So, you know, there's claims all along the spectrum about what's healthy for you. There's claims all along the spectrum about what's just. 
And uh, that's an aspect of our food system that we really don't want to look at <laughs> because we're a culture that assumes that um, we've been trained to assume that food should be plentiful and it should be cheap, you know, supersize me. And it's the perfect expression of that. And as a matter of fact, that was the model that uh, that drove my experiment in a new kind of eating. Uh, so... I don't think I'm I'm particularly different from people in this regard. I also I have also worked in sustainability for 20 years, so I know that um, even though the world looks like it's got plenty <laughs> plenty of resources, I know we're in what's a condition called overshoot. We're using more every year than the planet can afford us. So that means that we're eating through the seed corn. We're eating through the supply, and maybe it's not going to hit in our generation, but it'll hit sometime, whether you're talking about fossil fuel, whether you're talking about water, whether you're talking about natural gas, there's a peak natural gas. So so we're, I have been living with this data for years, so I've been this guided. Everything I've done is this sense that there's got to be a better way to live on this planet where we're still happy, but we're not destroying, um, you know, pulling up the floorboards of the house and putting them in the furnace. So so for all of these reasons, I was in this question about, you know, is local food, which is a rising trend, they say that local is the new organic. Uh, it's a rising trend. We have uh, increasing farmers' markets and community-supported agriculture where people buy food boxes, you know, support the farmer in the beginning of the season. So we have a rising interest in local food, but it didn't seem to me that it was you know, deep commitment. It seemed like farmers markets are pleasurable experiences that we go to as much for socializing and music as we do for buying food. And I call it the three beaters. You know, you go and you socialize <laughs> with your friends and you dance to the band and then you buy three beats and go home and you think you're doing something. But, but to me, that wasn't sufficient. The other piece of it is that I started being present to some data, and one of the things was what you're saying is that we're down to less than 2% of the population farming. And when a profession goes to less than 2%, it ceases to exist as a profession. It becomes other. So the average age of a farmer in the U.S. is uh, hovering around 57, 58. There are five farmers over 75 for every one farmer under 25 property values have soared, so even the massive number of young people who want to farm can't get land. They can't get land to farm on. So the system is rigged against having a real local food system, so the communities being able to provision for themselves, even like at the level of 10%, you know, for their food needs. We are completely woven into this industrial food system, which is a little creepy for me. Uh, and so I asked a farmer friend where I live on Whidbey Island, could we on Whidbey Island survive on just what we can grow? No, we're ferry dependent. We have a ferry to the south. That If, if there's disruption, the trucks that, that, that supply our supermarkets stop running. <laughs> and, you know, the supermarket is the end point of the industrial system. It's really a showroom for the industrial system. It's really hard for local products to be integrated into that system because there's a huge competition and there has to be the grocer needs to be able to to say every day of the year I have to have kale on the shelf. If you can't guarantee that to me, then I have to go to the big national distributor. So it's like the... So we, what happens if the ferry stops running? And I live in an earthquake zone, so there's a bridge way up 45 miles to the north that connects via quite a distance to the main highway. And, and so if that bridge came down, so I'm the kind of person who thinks about these things. So I asked my farmer friend, I said, like, could we do this? Could we live? Could we? Because it's, it's got a lot of apparent farmland. And she calculated land that's available for production that isn't under, you know, parking lots or the na naval air station. Land's available for production, uh, population of the island, uh, calories. She assigned 2,000 2, calories a day and things that grow well here. And she says, as it's constituted now, we could survive for two weeks in August. Wow. In other words, right. you know, in other words, we're, utterly dependent in a place that is 
uh, ferry dependent on an island. And so that, all of those pieces, all of the questions about the nature of our food system, the questions about obesity and diet-related diseases, the questions about supply chains, all of this was in me. And also as a perennial dieter, you know, I learned when I was about seven years old that I was different from other kids because I was fat. And so I spent <laughs> a life trying to, you know, trying to manage that so I would be included. You know, so that's a huge social push is like, I want to be accepted by people and I have to look right in order to do that. All of that fed into this moment in time when a friend of mine who's also a sort of farmer's market farmer, uh, I bumped into her at a 4th of July party and she said that she and her husband had just watched a takeoff on Supersize Me, the Morgan Spurlock 30-day experiment of eating only supersized meals at McDonald's. And this guy had done a different experiment. It was called Super High Me, and he'd smoke dope every, <laughs> every day of the month, which never didn't seem like amazing to me, but he made a film about it. And and her husband said to her, you know, you should do a super veggie me. You should do like a 30-day experiment of only eating what you can grow. And she said, no, I'm not going to do that. Too many things not available. You do it. No, no, the husband said. So she went about looking for people who would be willing to partner with her to run that experiment. And for all the reasons cited, I did it. I said yes to it. So in September 2010, I undertook this experiment, and we realized that she only had basically summer vegetables and a dozen eggs a week from her chickens. So we agreed that I could go out hunting for food within 10 miles of my home, which is the radius that she was at for me. And so I did find other foods, and that whole hunting for food on my island, you set a boundary. You say, I'm going to eat within 10 miles or 100 miles doesn't matter what your boundary is. Suddenly, where you live becomes super interesting to you because you've got to get everything from it. And so it, I dove into investigating what the food sources were, and I met farmers, and I, they became my friends. They became consequential to me because I depended on them. And I, somebody said to me, oh, 10-mile diet, that's not a problem. You go to the grocery store. You know, that's our concept of where food comes from. There's a joke about New York, you know, the way the kids know that it's dinner time is the doorbell rings. You know, we don't even know how to cook anymore. One of the many things I got out of this book is really being clear the cost of convenience is massive. It's expensive. Convenience is expensive for everybody, for the farmers, the growers, for people making food. In other words, for our body, for the soul of community and families. Convenience, in fact, is now extremely costly to things we don't even know it's costly for. You say that relational eating is being in relationship with food, farms, farmers, forests, water, soil, air, and other creatures in the local living feed system. I think this is a very important concept that only through doing the experiment you did can you really be connected at the heart of everything you call relational eating. Do you agree? I absolutely agree. Thank you very much for saying that. So uh, that is what came out of this commitment to eating within 10 miles of my home, is that I had this moment of shift where I realized, wait, no, food isn't in the grocery store. Food is all around me. I, I live in food. I am food. I, I'm, I'm connected with all life. And, and so uh, relational eating at the heart of it is reconnecting ourselves as eaters with the our sources of nourishment, you know, which is really the soil the food is grown in. And when you eat local food, you're eating food from a farmer who tends his or her soil really well because that's, that's his income, you know. So the vegetables grown in really, really well-tended soil, you know, nutrient-rich, you know, loamy, beautiful soil, that food is going to be full of nutrition. What I found from that was that I can eat a third of the amount and have an experience of satisfaction. Like I could eat white rice till the cows come home, as they say, and I don't get that that click in my body, but when I eat the grains grown in the local soils, you know, my body is actually someplace on the planet. I feel satisfied. I feel nourished. I feel nourished not only mentally knowing that I know Georgina who grew that grain, 
I know Georgie who grew my beans. I know these people. Uh, and I know that if I want to eat locally, I have to support my local food system. So relational eating is also understanding that our eating can support a financial system, two, you know, two different financial systems. It can support a global financial system where the money you spend at your supermarket pretty much flies out of your community and goes into corporate, you know, the corporate headquarters, you know, and feeds other communities and who knows in the, in the CEOs. Or you can invest through your eating in the prosperity of your local community. So that's another aspect of relational eating is understanding that you are creating prosperity for the place that you live. And if you want, you know, if you want a market, if you want a farmer's market, if you want a healthy community, if you want the sons and daughters of, you know, the your friends, if you want them to be able to stay in your community and make some money, this is like an important way to do it. And, you know, also you were talking about the cost of it, and I did some cost analyses. And number one, if you, no matter, if you can't be satisfied eating white rice, you're going to eat more and more of it. So even though the white rice in the supermarket, the non-organic white rice, might be apparently cheaper by the time it's consumed – it's going to be probably three times the cost per portion that leads to satisfaction. So number one, I actually, eating local food, <laughs> I don't overeat. And this is like, I didn't even recognize that this is an outcome. But I've recognized that I now have a, a felt sense of satisfaction. I have a felt sense of hunger. I never had that. You know, I just was always eating. <laughs> I, never, I never didn't eat. <laughs> you know, long enough to have that sense of hunger, nor did I have a connection with my body. That's part of relational eating is understanding your, is feeling your body, not understanding mentally, but feeling your body, feeling what feels good going down across your tongue. My tongue tells me what I want. The tongue has a sense of many flavors and it will respond, it will light up, you know, in the presence of something that the body wants. It's a, it's a communication device for the body. It's not just something to be manipulated by the industrial system. So, But I wanted to go over to this question of cost. Right. And by the way, you did know that what I meant by cost was that going to the supermarket, while it's convenient and appears to be cheaper, actually ends up costing all of us the entire food supply. Well, there's so much behind what you just said. So if I'll yeah. just unpack a few things. Please do. Like briefly, you know, like like just at least take the wrapping paper off. Um, so one thing is uh, the cost of satisfaction, the cost of a felt sense that you have enough food. And um, so I do analysis in, your, in Blessing the Hands of Fetus about the, the fast food burger and in that analysis, I point out that there is hidden costs in that fast food burger, part of which is that it doesn't really give you a satisfaction. Uh, as a matter of fact, it might even be uh, laced with things that give you a sense of dissatisfaction. It's the Frito-Lay, you know, <laughs> whatever that was, you know, bet you can't eat just one. Well, you can't eat just one because it's laced with things that make you want to overeat. Yeah, it's laced with additives. Yeah, so one thing is that you can make... Uh, local grass-fed, grass-finished bur- quarter pounder, and the meat is a dollar twenty-five. You know, in my community, and then you, uh, you know, most communities don't have you know local grain and local bread, but you know, you can get yourself a pretty decent bun. You can make local pickles. You can make local ketchup out of the tomatoes. Um, so you can have the additives. You can have local lettuce. You can even make local mayo if you want to. It's, that's, that's not hard. These things are not hard. They're just skills that we've lost. And that burger that you make at home, which is totally nourishing, is less. If you compute in the gas to get to the fast food joint and the time it takes to get there and wait in line, all of that is part of the cost of that burger. So that that myth of like, oh, you know, healthy food is more expensive. I want to bust that because it's also, it's, you know, what system are you feeding? Exactly. Exactly. What beast are you feeding? Are you feeding the beast of the industrial corporate food system? And it's not, you know, industrial scale, large scale farming, that's not evil. It's just when it's, when it's controlled by corporations, 
then the bottom line of our food system is profit for corporations it, it, in whatever it takes to make that profit. And corporations, the food corporations, produce about 800 calories a day more than our bodies need. So what's going to happen there for them to feed their bottom line? We're going to, they're going to pack calories into all the foods that we buy in the market so that they can make a profit. But Vicki, what about like when you wrote in your book that where we are now is that the farmers, the small farmer cannot compete with this industrial food supply, and then we're going to end up losing whatever farms are left. Exactly. So, yeah, so here's the economics of it. It seems like, number one, it seems like if you go to the farmer's market, the food is more expensive. Actually, when you buy food in season, you could, you could, you know, when the zucchinis are in, that local zucchini is the same price as the zucchini in the supermarket. It's just that we have an insistence that we have, you know, the zucchini all year long or grapes all year long. But, so here's some of the factors driving the system. Number one is scale, of course, you know, and, and vertical, what's called vertical integration. So a massive food corporation will integrate all of the elements, you know, the land ownership, the trucking, the, you know, the storage, they'll integrate all that. And that is an economy of scale. So that will drive the price down somewhat. But mostly since it's, it's corporations, there's, there's in the agricultural states, there's a lot of pressure uh, politically to have laws that favor uh, the large-scale producers. So, for example, the um, and I'm not against regulations. I'm not. I'm not like a total libertarian on this one. But the, there's a regulatory environment that favors the large-scale producers because there's licensing fees, there's inspection fees that can be internalized in the cost of a corporation that a small-scale producer, they have, they can't make money and still pay those licensing fees and pay the inspectors to come around because the producer has to pay. So it, that that's one thing that drives the small producer out of the market or drives up the cost. While Vicki's talking, everybody, I want you to consider what she's saying also in the context of finance with solutions and discoveries around the world, et cetera. Like, for example, regulations regarding securities and finance, you have a very similar type of issue. Who do they end up favoring? These regulations end up favoring the big players. Go ahead, Vicki. Sorry. Yeah, and I'll jump over there because that's another thing about financing. A, a, a sincere farmer, <laughs> how does a young person get land, seed, equipment? Uh, this is very difficult for the young person or the, the new farmer, you know, the vet who's coming back from the war and wants to farm. Very, very hard because the financial system is tilted against them. Uh, and so what we've done in our community and are do- is being done in communities around the country now is figuring out local lending processes that do fly under, you know, they, they conform somewhat to, they conform completely, sorry, to the SEC rulings about, you know, you can't invest if, unless you're a qualified investor. But it's peer-to-peer lending in local communities so that people can support their local producers in getting a grain mill or, you know, a bread mixer or a tractor or the things that are needed in order to be able to produce food. So there is this link, there is this disintermediation of the bank, this link of local investing also, but but the SEC rules, like you're pointing out, the financial institution rules, make it way more difficult for people to support their local businesses. I've been really doing due diligence about crowdfunding and not so much the rewards-based, gift-based crowdfunding, but the equity-based that supposedly the laws changed in the United States of America in September. And I was looking at Title III regulations, which is critical. So I go to this conference in San Diego. Nobody talks about the fact that it is so highly controlled that they have to have your tax returns. The government's going to decide if you get to invest more than $2,000. You can only invest more than $2,000 if you earn $100,000 or less a year. It's so crazy, the terms and conditions for doing it, that it creates so much friction and unpleasantness and so much delay that people are not going to want to invest. So there's an overregulation of the common person, yet it's the common person, it's the average person who actually needs to be able to say, hey, we need local food here. I want to be part of investing in that. They could go buy a cow, but they got to ask permission to invest their money to spend on a cow. It's crazy. 
It's crazy. Yeah. So there's there's several places where the financial system and the food there's many places where they overlap. And and one of them is is scale. You know, four four companies, Purdue Tyson and I can't name the other two, control 60% of our chicken supply. You know, they they kill 125 birds a minute and and they want to speed up that kill line. They have even free-range chickens are in huge chicken houses pecking at each other, you know. And and there's Calling it free range means that there's a little door at the end of the house where a chicken, if they can find the door, can go out into a fenced yard and walk around. It's not pastured. It's not out in pastures uh, plucking away bugs, et cetera. See, isn't that interesting? And most of us, I bet, Vicki, assumed that free range is pastured. How do we get sold this? It's the basic ignorance you know, I think a piece of it is, and I don't want to blame the eater. You know? I take responsibility for my confusion or ignorance, but I thought that free range equals pastured. Right. And so that's a piece of this is because our food system is so distant from us, we are depending on, on intermediary experts to inform us about it. But the experts turn out to be the advertisers for the corporations. That's who is, and some people, you know, some wonderful, you know, researchers everywhere from Michael Pollan to John Robbins to, you know, this book, Eating Animals. There's there's a lot of books that, that not everybody has time to read that try to decode this food system, but that's why local food has a particular advantage for the conscientious eater because you go and you buy the chicken. And I have a story in there about my acquiring my two <laughs> chickens for my 10-mile month. And what happened for me is that I'm famous for being frugal. And these chickens that were my you know neighbor was, was had raised that was willing to sell me to, he charged $5 a pound. And anywhere you go in, in farmer's markets, anywhere you go, that's, that's a normal price for a homegrown chicken. And, and I wanted to protest, but then I drilled down into, okay, let's take a look at what went into this chicken. He had to buy the chicks. He had to uh, build a chicken coop. He had to protect them from predators, which is significant. You know, you could lose a few chickens, if not all, uh, because there's a coyote in the neighborhood or there's a hawk. So he had to protect them from predators. He had to feed them, and most most people I know choose organic or better quality feed. He had to feed them. He had to keep them watered. He had to keep them warm. He had to keep them out of the rain. <laughs> and then he had to... It's like having children, for God's sake. Yeah. And, and and then he had to, you know, eight weeks in, you know, these are most chicken we eat is bred for, you know, big breasts, et cetera. You know, nothing wrong with that. These are very good eating birds. You know, eight weeks or nine weeks in, he kills the chickens and he plucks them. And then he guts them, washes them, packages them, and freezes them. That is a lot of resource and labor that went into that chicken. And that is what a chicken should cost. And so my thought was, you know, the question is, why is industrial chicken so cheap? One of the, and That's one of the places where you go into the really things we don't want to look at is is labor. You know, why are people who grow our food so underpaid, you know, that is, uh, whether it's, you know, migrant farm workers or whether it's people who, you know, are sort of low-end jobs and abattoirs and chicken farms and such like that, people are paid minimal wage, if that, the, so, so that goes into that price, plus the big producers have the ear of our Congress people, so things like the new farm bill, which I'm not going to discuss because I'm not an expert in it, uh, and it's sort of cobbled together, you know, know, horse trading deal where everybody got something they wanted and nobody got everything they wanted. So so they have influence, and so they can influence all uh, up to and including a special price for large-scale producers on feed. So the feed is unnaturally cheap, not just because of scale, but because of deals. So, so that's the cost. Now, I want to take, I want to look at that chicken again. I found number one, the taste was like completely different from a grocery store chicken. Um, it was much more flavorful. My tongue got a signal that it, of satisfaction sooner, um, and. Um, 
I realized that this is high-quality food. You know, when you have a relationship, when you're a relational eater and you know what went into growing that chicken. A whole different thing. Yeah, it's a whole different thing. I mean, I'm, I and many other people are, I'm a food abuser. I used to be. You know, food, I was happy, I eat, I'm sad, I eat. You know, I'm bored, I eat, I'm tired, I eat. And so, um, you know, certain times of day are my eating times, you know, where I seem to be a bottomless pit and the rest of the day I'm not. All of these are food addictions and sort of distortions. But once I knew the source of my food, I couldn't just eat that whole chicken like a grocery store, you know, roasted chicken that was a product I bought. No, this is a relationship I bought. And so I savored the chicken. And I've, I've ended up uh, probably eating about a third of the meat I used to eat. Um, and I think of meat as a treat, as a high-quality food, as flavorful, you know, beautiful fats and, like, yummy flavor. But I don't, I don't just, like, chow it down. Right. It's not just another thing in your bag of groceries. Exactly. So, so because I, you know, I'm frugal and I figure these things out, I thought if I eat, you know, if I eat half the amount of chicken, then I, I'm, I'm doing $2.50 a pound, not, not $5 a pound. So actually be doing this relational eating, it actually changed the proportions of the different foods that I eat. And it changed how I eat and how much I eat. And my food budget is no more. And I've thought about this too, you know, why do we, we spend the lowest percentage of our budget on food of any country in the world? This is that, what I was saying earlier, we expect that we have huge portions at low cost and we've been trained for that with fast food and, you know, the major chains like IHOP and those sorts of things where we get a mound of food on a plate. Uh, And so what would it be like and I always test things out in my own life. Food, and I think, what would it be like if I actually allowed myself, allowed what I spend on food to be an expression of my respect for my body and respect for farmers, uh, respect for the soil? If I allowed my food purchases to reflect my values, what would happen? Well, it might be that I spend more for food. might be. But this is the most intimate act we do every day. It determines our health outcomes. And I used to just toss food down like, okay, well, I have a body. Body will turn anything into me. <laughs> I didn't have any appreciation of the fact that I am I'm governing my health and well-being by what I eat. You just think about it like, how, what can be more intimate? That was so clear throughout the entire book. One of the other things I really liked about your book, Vicki, is that you had very practical applications. Like nobody could get stuck in ideology. You were transmuted into a paradigm that's accessible right here, right now, available to all of us. I love the part about making a list of the 25 or more foods that you eat most frequently to write down where it's grown and processed. I love it that you recommended we grow our own food, although let me tell you that my understanding legally is that in some states in America, we're not allowed to grow our own food anymore or grow your own gardens, which is a scary thing. I have no idea about that, but, you know, everybody can be a grower because there's such a thing called sprouting seeds, and I do have – you can look it up on the Internet, but, you know, I have in there instructions on how to use sprouting seeds. And so on your windowsill, you can just put a, you know – two tablespoons of seeds in a jar, put water in, let them soak, you know, and then soak and drain for several days. And these seeds will sprout and eventually the, the little leaves will come out and they'll turn green and you'll have this beautiful food. Even in the wintertime, you'll have greens for your salad or for sandwiches. And I love how you talked about how you can be not only a consumer but a food producer at the same time. Both. Right. And once you ha- once you have your little garden, you know, <laughs> once you have your little seeds on the windowsill and you're tending them and... You know, maybe you have a failed crop because you forget about it or you go away for two days or something. Once you do that, you have an appreciation of what it takes to grow food. And and also, a lot of people just simply grow uh, some um, spices, some herbs in their deck or their windowsill. You know, so you can have uh, parsley and you can have thyme and you can have marjoram and uh it takes a little more space to grow basil but you know oregano i i was 
somebody who owned my house before me obviously planted some oregano someplace or dropped some seeds because I had this sort of invasive weed in my lawn that I was always mowing. It turned out to be oregano. And so I really got it that, you know, you can grow a few things. Like you have those herbs and maybe some salt and maybe a couple spices and you can turn zucchini into anything. You know? uh, and I do have something in there that says develop your signature soup. And the fact of the matter is, is that if you understand how to develop a soup, you know, that you have herbs, you have spices, you have uh, root crops, things like potato, you have, uh, you have, you know, bulbs, things like onions, and then you have, and garlic, uh, those are bulbs, and then you have some leaves, you know, and then you have some fruits like, you know, like tomatoes or green beans or, you know, broccoli, you know, broccoli is really flowers. So I go through a whole list of the types of things you throw into a soup pot. And then if you don't do your own stock, you can buy some, you know, vegetable stock or beef or chicken stock. And, And like my soups are so good. And so you don't have to throw any food away, really. You know, just I'll be like, over shortly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a ton of soup. I just made a big pot. Um, and so, you know, the other part of this, really, what I discovered, and, and it's, it's sort of funny because I was from that generation of women's livers, you know, where I get out of the kitchen because that's a political expression of my value in society. I don't want to be stuck cooking. Um, now, young people love to cook. You know, cooking is coming back into fashion. But people, by and large, have lost the cooking skills, just like we, we're losing farming skills. We're, we're losing the skills that we used to have to be in a relational eater. So, Don't you think it's skills, but it's also, it used to be at the center of culture, basically ended up at the periphery, and it's being reclaimed as being centrally important. Do you agree? Yeah, I agree with that. And, and you know, God bless uh, the slow food movement, because they've really nailed it. They've nailed it at sort of artisanal food, you know, like food that expresses a place on the planet. You know, there's that term in wine, terroir, you know, the, the, the taste of a grape because it's grown in a particular sunny, you know, hillside with particular soil. The culture was built around food. You know, where I live, the, the natives were literally, they were salmon people. You know, the whole cultural round of the year was, was related to the salmon. So there is, I'm not saying we should go back to, you know, that layer, but, but I'm saying that there is a cultural identity. Like, you know, it used to be you travel to Italy not to go to McDonald's again, but to eat Italian food. You go to France to eat French food. You go to Tunisia to eat Tunisian food. Eating the food of a place was so much what the place was about, and we have lost that appreciation. So I, I teach some skills. I mean, it's just basic skills, like my first television appearance for this book was they asked me to do a cooking segment. And what I did is I used it as a home ec 101. I brought four different kinds of grain with me and my little dinky rice cooker, which I actually got from a free box after a, <laughs> <laughs> you know, in Ashland, Oregon, after somebody had a yard sale. So I brought my rice cooker and I taught people, how do you know how much water to put in, you know, in relation to the grain? And, and then you just turn the rice cooker on. And I pointed out that if you buy uh, what looks like a box of convenience food, you know, pilaf in the supermarket, you will pay four times as much for the grain. And it takes you more time because because of the rice cooker. You just put the stuff in and it's got this thermostat in there that when it, when the, when the rice, when the water boils out, the rice heats up and the thermostat clicks and it turns itself off. So it's a food that you can put in and walk away. So I'm trying to like alert people to that, you know, the book has recipes in it, beautiful recipes. Beautiful recipes. You know who would like your book a lot? The author of French Women Don't Get Fat, Mirier. She would love your book. I interviewed her a couple of times. She's a real delight. And her book was one of those books that got us to really fall in love with cooking and healthy food and really the French translation of the relationship of food and us. And it was so sensual. I felt that way about your book and your book 
brought in this whole systems approach to everything where what we're doing really is distilled the effects. I have a question here for you about food vulnerability for a moment. You know, in your book, you talk about how what you're advocating is not a way to supplant big agriculture, but a complementary food system. And in part, I accept that. However, my heart of hearts desires the renaissance, the return of local food communities all over the country because it's lost. So I can't help the fact that I see what's happening and I feel that we're going to lose it if we don't actually step in and start making it available. And your book to me is a pathway for how to do it. The other side of that is that while you say it's a complementary food system, it's a regional food system, it's a local food system, from the big agricultural perspective, they don't buy it. And if this became a mobilized, how do you say, a movement or it caught on, it is catching on. The question is, it's the scale, right? And how many people are going to now really take a stand to have local food and to do what they can within whatever the mile radius is? Certainly less than 50 miles, okay? But that is seen as a threat to big agriculture on a certain level. First, they don't think we can do it. And two, they don't think that the public can really mobilize enough individually on a community level to have it. But if it were to happen in the United States, it would be a total renaissance, wouldn't it? It would. And thank you. <laughs> You're so eloquent on this. Uh, the reason I call this Yes, it's it's totally radical, but most of the things I've done in my life are radical, and it's sort of like uh, mycelium. It's like, you know, the mushrooms don't grow from seed. They grow from this large network under the ground that when conditions are right, the rains come. You know, fruiting bodies are sent up all over from the mycelium. So, So I think that movements like this can at least, take hold at first layer at a level of mycelium, and it's happening. You know, the growth of farmer's markets, you know, the growth of desire for local food, the growth of food boxes, all of that. So that's sort of first layer. I think the next layer is community food systems, paying attention to um, distribution, packaging, the laws around canning, the laws around uh, distribution of meat and milk. Milk is very controversial. Uh, because pasteurization is the law of the land, and that sends up the price of, you know, neighbor-to-neighbor trade. But don't you think it's a true tragedy that if you have your own cows and your own goats, that if you give your neighbors any of the milk from your own personal animals, you don't even sell it, that you are now under, quote, the legal jurisdiction of someone who's selling it on a mass level? Yes, exactly. So, but I want to go back to this um, this idea of a complementary food system Please. because just to say that probably ninety five percent of the food you eat now, that your food intake is from the industrial system. So, from compassion alone, we understand that we have to set up a orderly process of transition. You know, part of it is is saying I want everyone to have access to fresh local food grown by people in their community. I want local food to contribute to the prosperity of my community. I want a renaissance in us being being an integrated society that respects our farmers. We can take that stand, and I'm hoping that I, I'm able to articulate that and contribute to that because there's many people taking that stand. Absolutely, and also the thing that I think that your book really eloquently lays out is that there's a place for taking this on personally with our families, our friends, our loved ones. It is, in a way, an insurance policy for our survival, should the grid go down, should something happen. Right. It's also a kind of emergency preparedness, but I wouldn't say this is the paradigm, but it takes something that's been peripheralized back to the center. And the reason I say the word renaissance is because a renaissance is something that is so attractive to people, but it's really the way we always should have been living. Somehow we lost control of the whole thing, didn't we? Yes, I love what you just said. And uh, so a couple things in there. I want to talk, I want to jump back to the complementary food system, and then I want to talk about food security. Uh, so since we are at 95% dependency on the industrial system, it's like a little bit 
sort of wimpy to say I'm going to protest the industrial system, but I, I'm going to have to go home and eat from it. You know, I can't, I can't crash that system <laughs> because I, I can't, I'm not free of it. So part of the orderly process is increasing the amount of local food grown, and there's, a, there's strategies, policies for doing that. So we're at 95% dependency. I think we can, like, make some goals. Like, by 2020, we're at, at, at only 75% dependency. That would be incredible. That would be great. Yeah, by 2050, let's say, we're at 50% dependency, and we can make the argument in terms of supply chain security. You could make this a national security argument that people need to have some food from the store and some people some food stored in the ground. So, you know, carrots and potatoes and things like that. Of you course. need to be able, your, your community food security and the government needs to support this with, you know, re- regulations is, is community food security is in part, you know, having, you know, silos full of grain and in part it's having the, transforming the capacity of communities to grow food and challenging some of the very root issues one of which is is property rights. Is if it's my property, I get to do what I want with it. And if I want to buy 20 acres of the best agricultural land and put my horses on it, that's my prerogative. So how do we create tax breaks? And how do we create, using the levers that society has, start to tilt the playing field back towards local food without saying to the industrial system, poo-poo, we don't need you, which is what the industrial system says to the local food. You must have the industrial system to feed the world, but we're seeing that that isn't necessarily totally true. And part of it is that the Green Revolution had, a, you know, where we were going to grow more food, it had, with fertilizer, it has certain, you know, run of increasing production and then it stalled. Now we have the GMO revolution. You know, we're going to grow more food because we have the genetically modified seeds. We can put on uh, we can put on our our highly toxic uh, weed killers and still get the great food out of there. And we must have this to feed the world because it's the only way we're going to adapt. Oh, and now climate change. You know, after the climate deniers, <laughs> there was no climate change. Now they're saying we can make a profit from it. You know, so the positioning of like for climate change, we really just need to have genetically modified seeds so that we can design food for the changing conditions. I don't argue totally with that. I'm just saying that that's the, that's the industrial system speaking in our mind, like, do not question us or you will starve. And I would like to challenge that, at least have communities waking up to our power to provide for ourselves and our, the people that we love and increase prosperity in the way to do it. So that's why I call it complementary. And I use that term because it was from medicine, you know, that... Right, right, complementary medicine. They were yes. quackery, you know, oh, oh, that's quackery, you know, acupuncture is quackery. And then it was like, oh, oh, okay, we had a little research, now it's alternative. You can do alternative treatments, we're not going to support it, we're not going to insure it. And then there was enough research and enough demand that the industrial system internalized that and said, oh, and, you know, our hospital, our clinic, we provide also complementary. You know, we have... Mm-hmm various approaches to healing you. One of them is the complementary medicine with acupuncture, and the other one is, you know, our our traditional surgery and pills, which is great. I don't want to do without surgery. I had cancer, and I had the cancer. There's a tumor taken out, and I'm here today. I'm not going to tell everybody to get off a system that has provided a lot. Well, you're very lucky because you're one of the 5% 5% that live to talk about it. So I'm glad you're here. And somebody upstairs <laughs> loves you. <laughs> so, so that's covering those two things about the right. idea of a complementary system, you know, that's not threatening. It's just saying we're going to show you that we can be as productive and we can feed our communities at, you know, whatever percentage uh, of local food production. And by taking a stand for that, we're taking a stand for supporting I call it the GI Bill for young and new farmers. You know, it's like, <laughs> really, I mean, it's like that. It's like, you know, when it was a national priority to bring the soldiers back from World War II and get them integrated into the economy, huge influx. Uh, we, they were loan guarantees. There were mortgages. There were uh, education, free education. There was all these ways we supported, the, you know, that generation 
to reintegrate into the economy and be productive in the economy. And it was an act of compassion, but it was also an act of strategy. You know, we need we need this uh, in our growth economy. I think we need to see uh, small and mid-scale produ- food production as a, that kind of priority. Young and new farmers get loan guarantees. They get subsidies for their crops for three years, let's say, so they can get up. They get education. It's not like, you know, you wake up one morning and say, I'm going to be a farmer. You buy some seed and put it in the ground. There's a lot to know, not only about growing food, but marketing food. And that education might take a couple of years. I don't mean to interrupt you, but I want to tell you two things. One, are you familiar with the restaurant Chipotle? Yes. I just found out that they have a commitment to only utilize pastured animals in their dishes. Isn't that great? You know, that's an example, too. I was so excited. I can't even tell you. Here's the other thing to see about that is that every one of us in the roles that we're in has an opportunity to be a driver in the food system. So restaurants can make a commitment like that. It increases demand. And so pastured beef and chicken becomes more profitable and people do it. You know, as an educator, you know, if you're in schools, you can do school gardens, you can do classes. I know I've seen a classroom that was totally integrated around food. You know, the kids grew the food, they studied food, they studied culture, they studied everything. As an educator, you can do it. As a, as a person in government, you can examine the, legal, the legalities you know, governing your local food system and see where there's opportunities. There might also be government grants that you can research and bring back to your farmers as a mom or dad, you know. As soon as you have a kid, you want to give them good food so you can drive the system from there. Wouldn't that be great if actually cooking and understanding about food from beginning all the way through till it's in your body, that children would be able to learn about their food from the beginning, young, yes, very early? Yes. And, and, and so what I'm saying, though, here is that everywhere there's food eaten or served, is a place where there can be an intervention. And um, and making that intervention might, in the short term, create some inconvenience. It might, you know, create cost. But anybody who signs on for this idea that fresh, whole, local food should be available to all of us and be grown closer to home so we're not so dependent on the big global supply chains, anyone who buys into this has a place to work. You know, right away, wherever, you know, it's called where you are. (laughs) I'm very excited. I want to ask you about Pam Mitchell, but before I do that, I want to share something with you in the audience. A couple of years ago, I interviewed several of the beginning Stargate team people that were on the remote viewing training sessions early when the CIA actually brought these remote viewers, had them trained. In my interview with Lynn Buchanan, I asked him, what do you see in 2025? Have you looked? And he says, actually, I have. I'm paraphrasing this. This is not his exact words. I said, what's going on in the United States of America? He said, we are preoccupied with food production and agriculture. We have become an agricultural society, totally preoccupied with agriculture. What I feel it tells us is very instructive Either A, something happened, obviously many things happen, but that it is where we have to go. We must return to where life really began. Mm-hmm. That agriculture is going to become reconnected at the heart of who we are, at the heart of community, at the heart of our relationships with everybody. And with that, if we can have a renaissance with it, not only do it ourselves, but help other people. I mean, you've gone the tough road to distill it to us, but this is really important. This is really it. This is the insurance we need. People need to be better connected to their community anyway for a myriad of reasons. Oh, that's another piece of this uh, that I want to say is that there's another form of security, not just food security, that's, that's been a byproduct, a surprising byproduct of this local diet is that I met so many people in my community that I, that I now care about and I care about their pr- prosperity and they care about me. And so someplace along the line, this bag lady fear thing that I, I had of basically saying, is my money going to run out before my life runs out? And at, my, at the end of my life, in the last years of my life, am I going to be 
uh, so diminished and decrepit that people don't want to take care of me? And am I going to have to buy into an industrial old age system so that I can I can live out my final years? And I realize now I'm part of a real community in a real place. Uh, and so and and there's all these social processes that have nothing to do with the government where people are taking care of each other, whether it's fundraisers for somebody who has to go to the hospital or funds that we develop or, you know, people, we have a hearts and hammers that one day a year we repair the homes of, of people who want to stay in their homes, but they can't do the repairs anymore. So it's like an integrated community that cares for one another. I mean, it's so alien to our modern mind, but that actually exists. And I am, I, I feel safe aging in this community. It doesn't mean I have to stay home every day. I'm known and loved enough that I can travel and come back. I just I just have been on book tour for three and a half weeks, and I came back to a, a gathering over the weekend. And there's all my community. There is hi, 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 and they've been tracking me on Facebook. You know, <laughs> so so it's the warmth of belonging, and belonging is a quality, not belonging to people in a place is a quality of emptiness that we don't recognize. It's the gnawing in our gut. It's probably why we eat. <laughs> it's like the one thing we can have control over that, 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 that kind of quells that, that, that um, anxiety. Uh, and so I, I would say, you know, I've probably maintained my weight because I belong to a real place. <laughs> it's, not just, it's not just about my eating. So I don't know if I've articulated that well, but this is nourishment for body and soul. You could call local eating, exactly. or relational eating, nourishment for body and soul. Uh, so you can jump in anywhere you want. It's, it's true that Blessing the Hands That Feed Us has, with each chapter that describes you know, my hunt for food and my experience of the local eat, you know, the 10-mile diet for a month and then my hunt for answers about how do we all have access to this kind of food. Every chapter has questions for reflection. It has exercises you can do. It has recipes you can try. So all the way along, it's not just a personal narrative or a social analysis. But it's very it, practical. Very practical. I want people to hear a little bit about what can be done. Like with Pam Mitchell, she's a market gardener. Talk she about- does something called spin gardening. That's the, it's an acronym for something. But basically, it's a methodology she found actually on the internet where people farm other people's property and they give some of the produce to the owner and some of the, most of the produce goes to uh, their being able to sell it in farmer's markets. So Pam actually was able to quit her day job, which is unusual for farmers. She used to do systems analysis at at Boeing, and so now she can make enough money each year through these cooperative relationships she has with um, a caterer and the caterer's land. And I think she has one other, yeah, she has one other cooperative relationship where she farms somebody else's land. And so that's a way... It's not the easiest thing. I mean, you know, number one, she's not in the process of her farming, buying the land, but she's got secure tenure. She's made contracts with people where they're not going to kick her out unless it's like a drastic thing like the land gets sold. Um, But people are are actually treating lawns like uh, crops, like my neighborhood could be where they grow carrots and then they go to another neighborhood for the lettuce. There's, There's soil everywhere, not necessarily good soil anymore, but right. there's soil everywhere. And so enterprising people who don't have land but they want to be food growers can at least get started doing things that way. Another young couple on our island um, is farming uh, the back 10 acres uh, that's certified organic, one of the few certified organic farms on our island. Um, and so it's an older couple whose kids are not farming here anymore they have wonderful farmland. They just don't have the energy to farm. And so they're renting out this back 10 acres to this young farming couple that maintains a CSA and also sells at the farmer's market and are totally adored by all of us. So, And that's the other piece of it is that now as a relational eater, I want to find solutions to these young people 
getting land and getting enough money from their crop to be able to stay here. I don't want to have an economy where I live where young people, where it's so polarized. You know, there's wealthy people who buy up the, you know, the waterfront property. It's so polarized that uh, economically that young people can't stay here. I want to solve the housing issues. I'm, I'm now, I'm now passionate about all the aspects of developing a flourishing uh, local food system. And I do want to say another, one other thing, and I know we're probably coming to the end, is that I did a 10-mile diet. If somebody wants to do uh, uh, something like I did, I'll just say, find a farmer whose food you want to eat, draw a, you know, measure the distance from your house to that farm, draw a circle. I did a 10-mile, yours could be 40 miles or 50 miles or 30 miles. It can be whatever whatever is a, is is appropriate to your location. So you commit to that, you commit to a month, you know, you commit to something that's that's like Lent, you know, that it's it's a it's a month of devotion to a value that you care about so that you can have the experience I had of finding your sources of food, but also your sources of nourishment and getting educated about the foods, the you know the the natural food system and the industrial food system in your locale, you do that journal every day. I wrote a blog. You journal every day. You know, weigh yourself before and after. You know, track your food. Do something that allows you to track what are the changes that are happening, and it's also becomes like a devotional. I use the word devotional. I don't mean that. No, I love it. It's beautiful. Religion, but you know you. It's a devotional practice to really investigate something that's so crucial to your life. And then at the end of your experiment, evaluate what happened to me and what, what do I care about now and what do I see I can engage in, however small, in, in, in being a food system restorer. And, and so you can, anybody can do that or you can just do it, commit to one food. <laughs> you know, just find out one food that grows well in your region and just commit to like, understanding what that food is, what's the family that food is part of, and then find out how to cook that food. Maybe, you know, figure out some way that you can um, process that food. You know, let's say you pick cherries, you know, and you can grow a cherry tree. You can, you know, there's so many ways to be a cherry person or a kale person or a potato person. Or you can pick a favorite recipe and just say, in a month's time, I'm going to be able to, to source every ingredient in this recipe within 100 miles of my home. And I think all of this puts us in that relational eater zone. And my sense of things is that regions, whether it's a bioregion or what you might call a food shed or it's a state or it's, you know, 500 miles from your home, the USDA measurement, that that is a unit of a complete diet. Um, you know, that is, is big enough so the grains and, and, and beans, you know, the dry field crops, they're grown someplace and the, and the lentils are grown someplace and the herbs, that it's a big enough area so that you can actually imagine we could feed ourselves from this region. And it's not terrible. You're not going to be able to walk everywhere to get your food. You just have... But you consider it, there's a term in sustainability called subsidiarity. You meet the need as close to the source of the need as possible. You know, if you need lemons, you know, you know, right now what I do for lemons is I buy lemons from anywhere. I love lemons and I'm getting them from the industrial system. But I'm also asking how can we grow lemons where I am? How can we bring that? bring that food that I love. Or they're so good for you. They're so good for you, too. And many people have them in their yards, and they're just sitting there. Well, you're from L.A., so <laughs> where I am, people are growing Meyer lemons in greenhouses. But still, okay. you know, when you do this relational eating experiment, you start to see what's possible, and you start to bust the myth that, that it's not possible where you are, that the industrial system is the only way, that if you want, you know, if you want lemons, you know, it's like, I, it's like the thought, I want lemons, therefore I'm going to buy into my dependency on the industrial system so I can have my lemons. No. Maybe you get lemons from afar and you get citrus and you get avocados and you get tropical fruit. And you, you know, maybe you get spices. You get these things from where they grow 
because season, you know, because that's the right climate for them. But that doesn't mean you can't commit yourself to 25% of your diet being locally sourced. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a graduated system. It's you can enter anywhere and, and get the benefits and start to be a learner and a participant. Like eating, I say, is an act of belonging. Eating is a way to, our, our food acquisition is a way to participate in the prosperity of our communities. We have to stop seeing it as a disconnected act that somebody else does for us and that we have no idea what the, what the source of that food is or the nature of it for our own bodies. And I'm, I call myself a flexitarian because I like that term because it means that I am attending to what my body needs. I am off of the ideological, you must eat meat, you must not eat meat, you must eat you know, cheese, you must not eat cheese, you must, you know, you, you have to drink eight glasses of water today, no, you have to drink three glasses and only before meals, you know, it, it's just like so confusing. So can I wake my body up as a relational eater and be a flexitarian and feed my body the food it wants to be healthy? Like, for example, I'll just say, in the summer, I eat much more cold food and um Summer vegetables. I mean, that's just, I love having summer vegetables. In the winter, my body wants grains, beans, and, and squash, and meat. And those are the foods that you can raise in the summer and store for the winter. Potatoes, things that are rooty, and um, beets, and turnips, and these root crops, and field crops, and, and um, some of the local meats. That's what's nourishing to me in the winter. That's what's in my soup in my fridge. You know, when you come over, (laughs) that's what's in my soup. It's really a pleasure and an honor. And I have to tell you, reading your book was one of the best uses of my time. I read everybody's books who's an author who comes to the show. But I have to tell you, this is the one I think really needs to be in everybody's family. I would invite your listeners, when they read the book, if they're inspired, that I'm developing some workshops based on the book, you know, so that, so that, you know, groups can go through this together, taking a look at their own relationship with food and their food system. And I also, if people are part of a community that really is starting to come alive around this and wants to examine what is my food system, what are the food sources here, where are the gaps in the system? I think it would be great because it'd be a big support to the people that were ready to go for it. So be in touch. My my website is VickiRobin.com, duh, V-I-C-K-I-R-O-B-I-N.com. And um, so be in touch. And, and I'm also very interested if the people listening are are already food system integrators. You know, you're the, you're one of the ones that's gotten this wild, <laughs> this wild sense that I have that, like, I want to help my community develop our food system. If you're one of those people, please be in touch because I really want to network with people around the country and even around the world who are thinking about this and learn from one another. Ladies and gentlemen, you can also watch Vicki Robin talking on relational eating in a beautiful presentation she did on stage at TEDx Seattle. You can find out more about her work by going to VickiRobin.com, V-I-C-K-I, Robin.com. Vicki, thank you so much for your continuing contributions to initiate this incredibly needed and wanted renaissance of the U.S. culture and hopefully for those countries around the world who need it as well. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you very much. This is a great conversation. It's rainmaking time. 